Welcome to season three of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. We are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy. And we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together. Some of the things that are happening in season three that we find so exciting is that not only are we continuing with the free gift that we are giving out every single week in season two, and you can see more about that in the show notes, but now we are adding a YouTube channel and you can see all of these podcasts on video. The YouTube channel is called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. Some people like to watch video maybe you want to use it for one of your trainings these videos on youtube will be there for you to use for free we would love your support we have opened up a patreon page that is going to help the podcast flourish and grow you can help us to expand and grow and create more content for you and we'd love for you to visit the patreon page which is called optimal state and yoga therapy hour podcast so let's go into our guest today and please nourish yourself take time for yourself and really relax into listening to the podcast today we have the good fortune of getting to know rebecca sebastian from quad cities iowa and rebecca is a master at helping us figure out how to run our yoga and yoga therapy business in a way that is sustainable to us, sustainable to our clients, sustainable to maybe the teachers that work for us and with us. She discusses today several different business models from sliding scale to percentages to save a model and how they can all work together. I think she's been studying feminist business models for a long, long time. And that was something that kind of really piqued my interest in this interview is this idea of learning more about feminist business models, where we bring the yoga to the business instead of trying to create a business out of yoga. And you'll learn more about what that means, how to bring the yoga to your business. I think she's really smart. She's really savvy. She actually does coaching to help people find their mission, their core values. What is the the big puzzle with all the different pieces that are going to help each person find a way to create a sustainable living where you feel supported, where you get to take vacation sometimes, where you don't get energetically trashed by being a yoga teacher who's working 19 hours a week, this type of thing. It's just a really refreshing conversation, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So I introduce you to Rebecca Sebastian. Good morning. I would love to introduce you to my friend and colleague, Rebecca Sebastian from Quad Cities, Iowa. And many of you don't know this, but I'm from Iowa also. So welcome fellow Iowan. Nice to see you today. Thank you so much for having me. I I love it when I meet other folks in the yoga world who've come from Iowa. It's weirdly exciting for me. <laughs> well, let's 
talk. I mean, first of all, I just want to say you are quite a businesswoman and we're going to talk all things business today. You own the Sunlight Yoga and Apothecary Studio in Quad Cities, Iowa, and you have a podcast called Working in Yoga, and you presented at Sitar this year, 2022, about basically how to build a yoga business and not feel gross <laughs> is what you said to me. <laughs> yes. Tell us a little bit about that idea. So I, I feel like so often in the yoga world, like the greater yoga industry, we have like this weird icky feeling that, oh, business is something I have to do in order to do this thing I love, which is teach or share yoga in some way. And I've decided that we need to stop telling ourselves that story. It's not serving any of us. I want us to tell stories about pride and professionalism and thriving wages and being able to wake up every morning and feel joyful about the business you're walking into and the work that you're doing in your community to support other humans. Ultimately, I felt like for a really long time, in order to make a living, business decisions were affecting the yoga. Instead, I feel like we need to reverse the direction of that traffic flow, that the yoga that we all know, love, and study should inform our businesses. So that's that's so hard because I feel like many of us at first we didn't want to be business people and maybe we still don't. And it's almost like we give everything away and we do everything for free and we show up and, you know, do free workshops. And so a lot of people that I'm seeing are bringing so much of that seva and so much of their heart and not able to sustain over time because ultimately they're not getting paid. And, but yet you're saying we need more of that. So unpack that for me. What I feel like what we need to do is build the service directly into our business models. I don't think this is an either or situation where you're either choosing to make a thriving living or you're choosing to be of service. I feel like we can skillfully integrate the two together so that you are creating a business that you love that is sustaining you and the people around you. So ultimately, I started doing some research in other industries, and there are humans out there who operate their businesses on what are called feminist business principles. And I went, there's no reason why we can't do this within yoga. And so I went on and, you know, I will credit all of my teachers in sort of this thinking of, you know, Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks, of course, were very influential in my thinking. And then you go into Jennifer Armbrust, who is in Portland, Oregon, and she runs sister.is. And she developed feminist business principles, how we can build businesses that feel different that don't feel like we are exploiting other people to make our money or asking us to sacrifice ourselves in order to be of service to other people. I don't think it's an either or. I think we can do both. How did you get interested in this? Because, I mean, I'm just sitting here going, oh my gosh, I need to read all these women that you just listed. <laughs> this is something I've been struggling with inside of myself for, you know, 25 years now. And to hear that you went outside of yoga to look at other models that could work and found these feminist women business principles. I mean, how, how did you know to do that? I was poor in teaching yoga, honestly. And I, 
you know, especially when you slide into the yoga therapy world where we have so much more monetarily invested in our training. Essentially, when I trained to be a yoga therapist 11 years ago, I was a single mother with a two-year-old toddler at home. And I, the only job I had had as an adult was teaching yoga. And I went, this has to be my career. And if I'm going to invest 10, 15, $20,000 in yoga therapy training, I have to make my money back. Like I had to commit to myself to make my money back. And so I was like, this is not working at the time I was teaching 19 classes a week and doing all the things that yoga teachers were doing, you know, to make ends meet. And I went, there's gotta be something different here. And what a story I think yoga folks tell ourselves is only in yoga. And I went, no, there's no way there's not another industry who's not dealt with the same issues we've dealt with. Mm. And I found chiropractors and massage therapists and people who are doing medical models. And I went, there's gotta be something that makes me feel excited to run a business and make money and also excited to share the yoga I love. And so you went out searching in these other industries. And I think that's so smart because sometimes we get in our little tunnel vision and we just can't see outside of ourselves. And to hear that it's not either, or you don't have to be like this massive business person who the bottom line is always the answer, but you don't have to be a a frugal, poor yoga teacher teaching 19 hours a week. Like there's, there's a place in the middle. And I know at Sitar this year, you presented kind of like three different models to think about a save a model, a percentage model and sliding scale. So can we break down those three briefly? Yeah, of course. So essentially to me, a lot of the things that I wanted to unpack about cultural appropriation and being a quote unquote good yoga facilitator or professional meant that I had to come into the money and I wanted to figure out how I could solve the challenge of going, well, yoga is too expensive because that's a story we tell ourselves. Yoga is too expensive. It's not accessible enough. And and I thought, okay, so there's got to be ways that I can do this that make me feel good and also mean that I can pay all of my bills. So I started looking at sliding scale, which is what most people are taught if you want to be quote unquote accessible or, you know, have this range so that everybody can afford your services. You're going to offer money on a sliding scale. Like my yoga therapy services are between 50 and a hundred dollars. You know, I'm just making numbers up. Also concurrently at the same time, I started a nonprofit called the Quad Cities Yoga Foundation. And our goal with the foundation was to build a bridge between yoga teachers who had to say no to work that they wanted to do because they needed to get paid and the work that lit them up. You know, I heard too many stories of us going, God, I would love to teach in jails, but I can't afford to take that time to teach and give back because I have to work so many hours a week to make my money. And I was like, this is just silly. We have to be able to build bridges instead of breaking them down. So as I looked at sliding scale, I thought sliding scale is interesting for a couple scenarios, but ultimately everybody who I know who does sliding scale also isn't making enough money. Mm. So if your sliding scale is between 50 and a hundred dollars or 80 and $120, you're still not getting to the humans who need the help the most and don't have access to financial resources. You know, if you want to go into communities 
who have lower income, say, or humans who are in domestic violence shelters or things like that, you've still not made your prices accessible to those people. Right. So I was like, it can't work this way. So what I found, and I will credit again, Kelly Deals, and she's on Instagram at Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y dot Deals, D-E-I-L-S. And she started talking about a third way, a way that you can take the amount of time that you want to work, the amount of money you want to make, and percentage it out. So at Sitar, these were the numbers we ran, was that if you needed to make $900 a week, which is middle class, right? So I want us not to just think I need to make the money that pays my bills. I want you to feel like you're thriving. I want you to feel like you can go on vacation. And that's important for our own care so that we aren't burnt out as an industry. That might actually allow you to do that living in Iowa, but many places in the country, $900 is not going to cut it per week. Right, right. Like, so, okay, let's say you want to make 900 bucks a week and you have 12 hours a week that you want to use for yoga therapy. Okay. So let's say you're going to spend 75% of your time making money and 25% of your time, you're going to just work for free. You're going to go into whatever community lights you up and you're going to say, Hey, I have three hours to work for free in your community. Mm. How much do you need to make in those nine hours? A hundred dollars an hour. There's your price. Right. So you've built the service into the money that you're making in your business. You don't. That's exactly how I've done it all these years. I don't, I don't do sliding scale because I think you and I have discussed this before. The people with a whole lot of money always choose the least amount on the sliding scale. And the people who don't have that much money want to pay more and feel guilty. Like somehow they're not doing it. It's just a really weird thing. I love this idea that you're saying like, for me, 20% of my time is to help people who maybe couldn't afford my services. And the other 80%, I have to make my money to be able to do the 20%. Yeah. I mean, ultimately the moral of the story is you likely need to raise your prices. We all need to raise our prices so that we can do the service work that lights us up. Mm. And there are some other things, especially about sliding scale that one of my business principles is nobody feels icky. So if there's anything in your business model that makes you feel icky, whether it's what you're using for marketing, whether it's how you're feeling about what people are paying you, then that's something we need to deconstruct. And in sliding scale, one of the things that everybody does is put their heads in other people's pocketbooks. And that's icky. Like how much somebody else makes isn't your business. And what they can afford or can't afford imposes your value system on somebody else's values. If someone has a lot of money, it is frankly not your business what they do with it. So we have to do a different model because it's that's icky nobody feels good the person receiving you know all of our thoughts about where they should spend their money you know the amount of time somebody said oh i did the sliding scale thing and somebody chose the lowest tier and then i saw them out at the bar with their friends like and i was like but what if what they value is connection and community with their friends like why are you telling them that they're wrong (laughs) well and it comes back to us valuing ourselves, like yeah. even have those thoughts about so-and-so shouldn't be doing this. They, sh- Well, what if I just said my price that I feel valued at 
so that everybody could go do whatever the heck they wanted to do on the weekends. <laughs> do separate yes. things, you know? Yes. I mean, when you have money, like when somebody else has money, it is not our job to tell them what they should be doing with that money because our values and belief systems are ours and other people's are theirs too. So there's something that's that to me always didn't feel quite right in that kind of thought process of like, I was always trying to forecast what other people could afford instead of just saying what I needed to thrive. Yeah. So that brings me to this question before we go on to the other two models. What do you do in a place like Iowa if people are not willing to spend a hundred dollars on say a yoga therapy session? I mean, is that a problem or? My prices are $120 an hour. And I was just on the phone with a lady who was from a very tiny town. And honestly, this just happened an hour ago. And she's from a very tiny town and she was trying to find some yoga therapy for her mom. And she said, now in Iowa, you can expect a massage or an acupuncturist to charge between 60 and $70 an hour, maybe 80 if they're on the higher end, right? So this is my local area's typical charge for something like that. And it, you know, a wellness service. And I was on the phone with her and I said, if you want me to drive to you, it is my regular hourly rate plus $20. And if you come to me, then it's just my regular hourly rate. How much does it cost? $120. Well, and you know what she said to me? And this is a lady in her 60s, people who we think we have to sell our services for. And she said, well, if it works to help me feel better, that's well worth the price. Right. I said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yes. And I think yoga therapy is such a unique modality that we get a lot of the people that nothing else has helped. And trust me, they have spent thousands and thousands of thousands of dollars trying to resolve their pain or whatever it is they have going on. Yeah. I, I think we have to be unafraid to charge higher prices. I mean, if you want to look at, a, at the industry on a whole, the more money that we are generating for ourselves, it's the facilitators that stabilizes the industry that's been radically destabilized from COVID because we really were burned to the nails, a lot of us. Mm. Like, and also that means, for example, in my community, for 11 years, I was the only yoga therapist. And now there are people who are training to be yoga therapists in my community. And I look at those people and I say, you know what, by the end of the year, I have to raise my prices by 40% so that they can slide in at a higher rate mm. so that they can make the money they need to thrive. Like, it's not just about what I need, but it's about what we all need wow. to feel like we're thriving. That's amazing. So anything else you want to say about sliding scale before we go into either percentage model or the SAVA model? So I do think sliding scale does work in particular circumstances. So I don't like, I've often said, stay away from sliding scale and sliding scale can sound like tiered pricing. It often sounds like equity pricing. Sliding scale essentially has different names, but it's all sliding scale. I think in situations where you're having a one-time event, Sometimes sliding scale can work in those situations where let's say you're running a festival or something and you want everybody to be able to come. You need them to pay you something, but maybe not, you know, the 250 or $350. You can offer sliding scale in those cases. But to me, those are situational. That's not a business model. Mm. 
that's over the like, long term. It sounds like those are more kind of community building yeah. communities when you want everyone to be able to show up. Yeah. And, and the percentage model is what I had said earlier. You decide how many hours you want to work. You decide how much money you need to make and how many of those hours you're wanting to give away and how many of those hours you want to get paid for that money. I mean, if you want to make $2,000 a week and work two hours and 50% of your time is given away for free, that just means you find one client a week who pays you $2,000. Like this is just math. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I, I just want to say though, people, it, it is just math, but I think it's so connected to people's self-esteem and am I worthy and am I going to see results and getting in the wallets and heads of other people. What if they don't have that money? Like there's all these extraneous conversations going on in our heads that really have nothing to do with the fact that you have to create a sustainable business for yourself and go for it. Yeah. You said one of those phrases that I also want us to stop telling ourselves the idea of charging what we're worth. You are a perfect, imagine, like, like unimaginably valuable being that is made of stardust and magic from the universe. And so unless you're charging $10 billion an hour, you're never charging what you're worth because your value as a person is not directly correlated to the amount of money that you're making, right? And the amount of money you have does not exponentially decrease or increase how good you are as a person. There are plenty of rich people doing amazing things. Mm -hmm. So the stories we tell ourselves that charge what you're worth, you're worth more money than you can imagine. Everybody is. So judge your prices based on something else. How much do you want to make to thrive? And where do you live? Yeah. And now with the internet, being able to do things online, almost where you live is irrelevant at this point. Yeah, truly, truly. You can get clients from all over the world if you're marketing savvy. Can I say one more thing about this? You know, there's how many hours do I need to work and get paid X amount to sustain myself? But one of the problems I've had, and I've really started getting much tighter about this, is the number of hours that my clients want from me grows, but the fee they're paying me doesn't. So for example... Mm -hmm. I'll tell them, okay, it's a one hour lesson. We talk for 20 minutes and then for 40 minutes, we record your practice together, you know, on, on zoom yeah. so that they can have me teaching them during the week when we're not in connection. Well, they'll want to talk for an entire hour and then they'll want me to take another hour of my time to create their practice and record it and send it to them. And so what started happening is I was beginning to spend over two hours for something that was supposed to be one hour. Right. And so I just wanted to point that out that sometimes it's our own boundaries that we're letting get stretched when all I have to say to the client is we're going to talk for 15 to 20 minutes and then we're going to record. If you would prefer to do yoga counsel for an hour, that is perfectly fine. I'm happy to do that, but we will not be having a recorded practice for you then, which would you prefer? Right. So yes. 
I mean, that's so important what you just said. My friend Lauren K. Roberts, who is a skill in action facilitator, she just posted a meme today that was the person you used to know was the person who had bad boundaries and was a people pleaser. Let me introduce you to myself as the villain. And I was like, yeah, villain for life. Hold those boundaries. Like there's nothing wrong with holding boundaries. And remember, there's a lot of like complicated narratives that culturally, especially humans who identify as women, have been taught, including how other people feel is more important than how we feel. So again, we have an industry primarily of humans who self-identify as women and have been raised and cultured in that way. We have been geared to give and give and give, and we judge other women who aren't doing that. Let's stop telling ourselves that story. Let's start telling stories that boundaries are radically feminist. Yes, 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 yes. So it sounds like you talked about the percentage model and the SEVA kind of all encapsulated in the sliding scale, like the three yeah. are kind of working together. Is there anything else you want to say about percentage model or SEVA? I don't think so. Those two together, having that that service time built into your business, I think is really important. And if you're listening as a yoga therapist, the hours are really easy. But I will also say that I do that for my yoga studio as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't teach there, but I hire yoga teachers who teach there. And for every 10 memberships I sell, I have one service membership. And that service membership is my service. So I call the organization in the community who I want to support. And right now it is a domestic violence shelter. And I say, I have a service membership for you. Do you have somebody who wants to use it? And they send me the name and I put them in our system. No one knows but me. So those humans are treated just like every other person that comes in the door. In fact, it was like two years in before one person who came in as service even said anything in the studio. They just came in and took their practice and left. And you can do it in any part of your business, right? So it's just for every 10 people I make money on, I have one membership that goes away for free. That's my cost. And that's just because that's how I want to show up in my business every day. I agree. We do that for a yoga therapy school, a very similar equation to that, that if I get 10 people in the program, then I'll have a scholarship available. And it works so well because it doesn't cost us much of anything. I mean, it does cost some time and energy, but it really isn't a significant hit on us. It's not going to take us down to do that. Right. And it right. feels so good to be contributing. Yeah. It's how we want to show up as business owners. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. You're all about having a mission-driven organization. Tell us about how you came to that and, and what do we need to know? Because I'm the same way. I have a mission statement. I have my three top core values and everything goes back to that mission statement and core values. Well, I mean, I, I think in business, we need a guiding light, right? That thing that keeps us accountable so that every time I'm making a decision that feels hard, I have principles that I can turn to and say, is my decision in alignment with all of the things that I want to be as a person? I mean, that's yoga, right? <laughs> that's us. As yoga practitioners, I'm making decisions in my personal life that are in alignment with the yogic principles that I hold very, very close to my heart. And for some reason, we don't talk about that in the 
business side of yoga. People just say, oh, I have to do whatever I have to do to make money. And I think that doesn't have to be the way that we operate. So I have a mission statement, like you said, in my business, I have core principles and core values that I work very hard to be in alignment with every decision that I make. And I'm always learning and growing and iterating new, new variations of that. And as I learn and make mistakes and figure it out, I become more in alignment with those values. And I think we all want to do that. Yeah. You know, the way that I finally came upon my mission statement, I mean, I had one, but it was so generic and vague. It really didn't guide anything. It was just this statement that, that I never used. And what happened was I got into some really, really difficult times and I hired a human resources person to help me unpack what had happened and how I could do better and what, what we needed to do going forward. And she said, well, let me see your mission statement and your core values. And, you know, of course they were nothing. (laughs) And so she basically what she did, and I thought this was brilliant. I'd love to know your, your um, perception of this. She made me write all the problems I was having and then tie those to the core values that weren't being met. And I thought that is brilliant. So I took my suffering and use that to create my core values. And that has led me so well. I would have never thought to reverse engineer it like that. I would have thought to make my core values so happy and positive instead of, okay, this doesn't work. So now we need to fix that. What do you think of that? I love that idea. I mean, I I often feel like we as yoga humans tend to enter with sort of like Pollyanna kind of ideas of how it's supposed to be like, and and sometimes we tell ourselves stories like, oh, I'm just going to wait till it comes to me. And, And sometimes when I hear that, I hear, oh, this work is hard. It makes me uncomfortable. So instead of doing it, I'm going to say that I'm going to wait. I mean, I want you to be radically uncomfortable because that (laughs) a lot, I mean, that's what business is, right? Like it is the most uncomfortable thing ever. I had a situation that happened to me in May and, you know, uh, found a staff member who was behaving improperly and all these other things. And I talked to my business coaches and I said, is this just what this is for forever? Like I just learn new skills until I do something bigger or harder and then I'm uncomfortable. And then I learn those skills and then I have something else bigger and harder and more uncomfortable. And they were like, yes, that's, that's what business is. And that's what life is. And that's what yoga is. So when we have our business course at the optimal state, people are like, oh, it's so hard. And oh, I I don't want to do this. And I'm like, this is no different than life. This is no different than a yogic path. It just happens to have a budget and a mission statement and, you know, and percentage model attached to it. But it really is yoga. Yes, this is our yoga. I mean, our yoga training can guide so much of our business. And it's when when I point that out to people, I get so excited because guess what? If we had an entire industry of really ridiculously good human beings who have spent time and effort and energy learning how to become their optimal selves, what could we do? Yeah. I mean, the sky's the limit. Do you think that 
people separate business from life and yoga because of money trauma. Like I, I've really studied this, like, well, why do we think business is over there and yoga is over here? Why isn't it just life? And I think people, you know, that first chakra survival, there's not going to be enough. I'm not going to be provided for It's horrible being extremely poor. Let's face it. All that stuff creates so much emotion that I think people just get frozen and they can't move into the business, bringing their yoga to the business. Yes. I I think a thousand percent that's what happens. And like I said, we have an industry primarily of folks who are women, BIPOC and minority in some way. Remember, we are all operating in an overarching system that was designed for us not to win it. Like this is a system designed for cishet white guys to win, and that's overwhelmingly not us. So we take on all these ideas that we are supposed to be like how other businesses that are not heart led, that are not philosophy led. And and we say we should be doing that because that's what everybody else is doing. And I just say that's crap. We don't have to do that. You know, I want to say something about that because I've heard so many people say, when you learn how to create a, a yoga business, go outside of yoga and find like Tony Robbins or Dean Grazioso or and I say, no, 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 because what, what they are teaching you, God bless them, isn't yogic and it, it isn't going to actually work in the yoga world. You actually need yoga people like Alyssa Fennig, like Rebecca Sebastian, like uh, Lizette Holland, like our yoga business course. Yeah. Like we need people that have been here on the ground, bringing the yoga to the business for 20 years. That's what we need. Yes. And I've, I've heard so many stories of folks who have gone out into other communities who have other business coaches. And I will say my business coaches exist outside yoga, but they primarily serve yoga people. Mm -hmm. So while their business is actually tech, they run a software platform, their main like customers are yoga folks. So they understand that we're a little funny about money. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 we can come through and if you have to teach your business coach what it is to live a yogic life you're doing work for them so come find folks who are building the businesses you want to build within the industry yeah i think that's important to look at the models that we have and and what's working and One thing that I think is interesting about that is there are some pretty high level famous people that are making as much as they're spending to appear at this high level. I mean, I I talk to high level people and they say, I'm going broke. And I'm like, oh my gosh, but it appears on social media that you're doing so well. No, we have to spend so much to sustain this. So that's another thought is you know, when you're looking at different business models and people you'd like to emulate, actually talk to them and say, "It is yours working? And because it, it may be some kind of superficial shell that actually isn't working. And there may be somebody in Iowa that is making $70,000 a year kind of under the radar that nobody knows about. I think there are those humans all over. I do think that there are plenty of really savvy humans within yoga who have figured out a model or a system that works for them. 
And and one of the things that I think we feel like we have to do exactly what somebody else does. Like that is a question I get a lot of the time. Well, this part of your business doesn't resonate with me. Do I have to do that? And one of my business principles is nobody feels icky, right? So if what I'm doing doesn't align with what you want to do, no, of course you don't have to do it. Yeah. So on that note, you know, a lot of people say, I don't want to get on social media. I don't want to be on Instagram or Facebook. Do you think it's possible to run even a local business without doing some tech on social media? Of course. I think likely if you're not on social media, you have to be running a strong email list. But to say that that can't be done, I know for a fact that can be done, that there are plenty of people in our industry and many other industries who are making very good livings on an email list. I, if you're hesitant on social media because it makes you feel icky, let me encourage you to take on the problem of building a social media presence that doesn't make you feel icky. That's right, right there. <laughs> like, right. I run a yoga studio and you will not find one asana posture on my platform because I'm not selling asana. So, like, you don't have to do what everybody else has done. And I tell people all the time when you are on social media or if you're talking to your customers via email, it is a love letter to the people whom you want to see. It is a love letter. Write the sappiest possible love letter to those people. I mean, that feels good. Like, this is how I can help you. This is how, this is why I want to see you. This is why we will be good together. Like, make it sappy. (laughs) Like, yeah, I agree. And, and, you have to feel that though, or else it's going to come across as phony. But I think most of us do feel it. It is something that resonates deep inside of us, you know? Yes. And then when you do that, you do all of the other marketing things that other people are telling you without even trying, like make your marketing about the people who you want to see, not about you. Mm -hmm. You know, that alone, that relationship alone is really important make it about other people. I mean, if you if you want to be a pe- people pleaser, social media is a really good place to make mm-hmm. what you're doing about other people. Yeah, I think that's, it's so interesting. Almost everyone that comes into the business course thinks they it has to be about them and their bio and their teachers that they studied with and all the great things they're done. And I'm like, put that on like the third page back. People will, will find that, but that's not your lead. You don't go in with, Hey, it's all about me. Look at me. Like that just doesn't work. Do you teach yoga classes like that? Hopefully not. Hopefully you're coming into a yoga class and making your teaching skills about the humans in the room and answering their call. Your marketing can be the exact same way. And guess what? You already know how to do that because you've walked into a yoga class a billion times and said, this is about you. This is my love letter to you today. Just do that for social media. So I'm going to say something very delicate right now that I hope doesn't offend anyone, but there are people even after they kind of get their, that in their head, that this is about the client and their needs. It's not about me. They still have a self-referenced way of being in the world that Mm -hmm. somehow I'm still going to be embarrassed or I'm going to be humiliated or people are going to say bad things about me. And I keep saying, 
well, that's part of the lay of the land. Yes, that's going to happen. But it actually doesn't matter because it's not about you. It never has been about you. It never will be about you. How do you work with people to help them understand like nobody's watching you, nobody's standing there waiting to like jump on you and critique you? Really, you don't exist in most people's minds. It's, it's kind of a yogic <laughs> concept, right? Yes. I think you've said it exactly perfectly. And we do sort of, because right, we're all existing in this social media space where if you're a consumer of the content, you feel like you're this grand voyeur into somebody else's life. So it gives you an inflated sense of self, like, oh, everybody else must be watching me the way that I'm watching them. Like, if you need to be less of a consumer and more of a creator, the creation part is inherently wildly creative and fun. Like when you say those things that resonate with other people, I just made a post the other day that 40 people shared and it felt really fun to have said something that resonated with other people. And that wasn't about me. That's about them. That's about having them have an experience. And again, this is something we know how to do as yoga teachers. We walk into a yoga class and hopefully we are removing ourselves from other people's yoga practice. It is their practice, not our practice. It's, you know, the thing we're telling people, stay off your yoga mat, make sure that you're not just demoing, you're teaching. It's just that, but on social media, like have fun and be creative. And if you have to reduce how much you consume in order so that you can create, do that. You know, I think it goes back to the late eighties and early nineties when yoga, at least here in California, was just starting to blossom. And there was like the hot studios with the, the amazing teacher. And like, it was kind of like a, a fame thing. Like, oh, I got to go try to stand in line to get in so-and-so's class. And I just want to point out like the whole yoga landscape, I think has completely shifted away from that fame model to this idea of we are a service to the people right in front of us. And it's not about us. But I think that there's that leftover residual of, do I have to try to be that famous person and feeling insecure about that? Yeah. And I think we have to understand that a lot of those folks who became famous in the eighties and the nineties, and I just had a conversation a couple months ago with a group of people who referenced, you know, practicing with Madonna in New York and, you know, that, that was kind of a lightning in the bottle sort of moment. And the people who were there financially benefited, they, you know, all of the benefits of being first in the market in anything, right? So, but we no longer exist in that landscape. We didn't in the teens and for sure after COVID, that landscape no longer exists. So to me, that's exciting. We can co-create the future we want for all the times we have complained. And I have probably been the loudest complainer, so I will own this. I'm a recovering judgy yoga person that we were in an industry that didn't work. It was run by people who we didn't like, all those things. Like we're live right now, co-creating our future. And it can be absolutely and amazingly beautiful and nurturing for all of us. We just have to get in it and, and do some work. Well, and there's such a lot of self-reflection involved to kind of look at the whole landscape of what's happening, what's shifting. What are my gifts? What are your gifts? how can I live my mission? You know, yeah. how can I, I just want to go back to that whole mission thing 
you know, the mission for us, and you can pull yours up too, if you want, Rebecca, just to kind of share, I've always felt that, that why I'm here is to provide a container for deep connection with myself, with others, and to something larger than myself. And the, the core values that I want to do that with are inspiring people, communicating well, and creating belonging. And it just, to me, that makes it so much easier to figure out what to say yes to, what to say no to. Even though I get a great opportunity, it's that one's not for me because that doesn't fit in line with my mission and my core values. How about you? I agree 100%. I mean, I have six core values that are based for yoga and for my apothecary. So we sell a physical product as well. So making sure that what we sell is fair trade, environmentally sustainable, like all of those things align with core our core values. And then I also have business principles that I am always in line with myself. And essentially it is being clear about what I sell. I don't sell yoga. I sell an experience because yoga isn't a commodity. Yoga comes from a culture I don't belong to and I don't have any attachment for it. And it was a gift from my teachers to me. And it will be a gift from me to every student who I have ever seen. So then what do I sell? I'm very clear I sell experience. And I sell a very good experience if you come into my space. It's lovely, it smells nice, you get tea. It's a nice experience, right? That's why you pay me money. The yoga is free. I'm clear on that. And I think other people should be clear on that too. It doesn't have to be an experience. You can sell your expertise, your skill set, your training, your learning, all those things. I never want to feel icky and I never want to make other people feel icky. And I want to make sure that everybody thrives and everybody includes me. Yes. I think that's the, that's the hard part because here we have, you know, all these teachers, I looked at your website, you have a lot of teachers that teach with you. They need to be sustainable, but so do you. And I don't know if you've had this issue. I don't know if it's even an issue, but to help them understand that if, if they're getting all of it and you're getting none of it, this isn't going to work long-term or vice versa. The owner's getting everything and the teachers are getting nothing. That's not going to work either. It's true. I have like in my back burner, this podcast that's going to come out. That is a solo podcast of mine called yoga studio owners and yoga teachers need couples therapy. (laughs) It's like, we have to have a real, it's a relationship, right? Like this is a back and forth. And I think the clearer, to be honest with you, the clearer I got about my numbers and the more that I could be transparent with my staff about how that works the better off. So I can tell my staff, my goal is as a yoga studio in Iowa to pay you $50 every class, but I just survived COVID where I didn't pay myself for a long time in order to just pay you guys and keep the rent. So I have to build myself into that before I can get us all there. But once the studio, once the yoga makes this amount of money, then y'all get a raise. When we make this amount of money, then you get a raise. Like if I'm clear about where I'm going and I'm transparent and ethical and people believe in me and I'm, I'm doing my best to learn and make mistakes and learn on the go and say, I will do better next time. Then people believe in me and I believe in them. Like my whole mission is to build a business where they feel excited to share their talents and skills. 
I love what you just said about kind of keeping them informed about the goals and that when we lift this up together, then we all benefit, right? Yep. It's Rising not tides lift all just, ships. Yeah, you're not just going to be like, oh, I'll take that 40 grand of profit this year. You're going to invest it back into them and reward them and thank them for all of the hard work. Yes. And then when I'm included, I do that without resentment. When I've paid myself, it then isn't a sacrifice model. It is a everybody feels good model. Now, does that mean I don't get there as quickly as I would like? Yes, of course, because I would already like to be paying them $50 flat out and I'm not. Mm. But I'm getting there. I watch my numbers. Every month they increase. When we hit the next increase, they get a raise. Then we'll hit another one and they'll get a raise again. But it means everybody thrives, even if it's a long game play versus a short game play. And Rebecca, did you have any trauma around money? Because you seem so comfortable doing the research to figure out the business model, to do the budget, to say, here's our goals. Like you just seem really comfortable in your skin with all of this. So my father was a con man and stole millions and millions and millions and billions actually of dollars from banks all across the world. I, as a child, this is a true story. <laughs> this is not where I thought it, this was going, but I, I'm in, let's hear it. I wanna, like, I wanna get the tea on this. <laughs> my parents divorced when I was young, but my dad was a professional confidence man, con man by trade, and spent so much time trying to take money from people all over the world because he felt lack. And my mother, in result had a whole lot of scarcity because of that because she was never going to be like that so very classic midwestern you know we're we're pulling the toilet paper ply in half and cutting the q-tips in half and clipping coupons and every corner was cut and so i was never taught the middle i was taught extreme scarcity or extreme hustle with the complete you know doesn't Winner takes all, no holds barred, trying to grab all the money you could. And I knew I didn't want to be either one of those things. And for years, I was like frozen with this right. idea, like, I'm just not even going to deal with money. And I feel like there's so many people in the yoga world like me. Now, maybe you didn't have a con man as a dad, but you had some sort of money trauma that made you feel like you didn't even want to deal with it. That's and I know so me, yeah. <laughs> like, right? Like, yeah. like, and I told myself all these yoga stories to support that, right? Like, oh, yoga people don't need money. Yoga people aren't concerned with, you know, a thriving wage. If I'm really yoga, then I am not going to worry about how much money I'll make. I'll just make do with whatever it was. Like, that is not healthy. That is like there's 44 billion dollars in our industry at 2000 in 2017 the yoga alliance and yoga journal did like a collective study together and the money that they said in 2017 was 44 billion dollars and who's making all that money though like i I not us <laughs> i think that somehow there's a group of people who aren't making money that are looking at people like you and i thinking oh they're making all that money and i'm no. thinking is this yoga pants? Is this yes. like, I really don't think people who are doing private lessons and studios, we, we are skimming by and like, that's okay. It, it is okay. But also 
What the $44 billion tells me is that there's money to be had within our industry. So when we tell ourselves a story that there's not enough, we know there's a surplus. And it is just a matter of us being committed to going to get some of that money and radically doing good things with it. Because what happens when good people have more money is like literally nothing bad. Good people, when they have more money, go buy the rainforest. Because that happened. You know, like like Lizzo right now is donating millions of dollars to funds to support people for um, healthcare services in the United States. Like there are pop stores who literally fixed infrastructures of the cities they were born in during crisis because the cities themselves couldn't do that work. And so somebody like, you know, whomever, Beyonce and Rihanna, I'm thinking of both of their examples, they're like, well, here's several million dollars to fix your problem. Yep. Your road or your bridge. Or yes. Your school. Yes. Yeah. Like, good people having money isn't a bad thing. Money's yeah. a neutral. Yeah. So I'm going to switch directions a little bit and we're getting close to the end, but yeah. you know, what do you say about cultural appropriation and white people making money off yoga? I mean, do you have any kind of ick factor there or I just like to, to hear so, more about that? I did for a really long time. And a story that happened to me in 2013, this is when I started really unpacking this, was that I was in an Indian grocery store. And it was a grocery store that I frequented, my family frequented. We bought doll, we bought our dill, we bought a whole bunch of stuff at the Indian grocery store. The gentleman who ran the store started to know us and asked me one day what my job was. And I lied to him. Mm. I said, oh, I wait tables. Without flinching, I told him a complete lie. And you know, like, we're not into lying here in the yoga space, right? <laughs> we're not. No, we're like, we'll there. Right? And I was so embarrassed and ashamed that I had lied to him. And I also was like, why did I lie? Like, why did I tell him a complete untruth? Because I was too embarrassed to tell him I taught yoga. And so that's how I started unpacking like this, the, the concept of cultural appropriation. And to me, the important part of it is the commodity exchange. Like, why is money being exchanged? And so I was like, I can't sell yoga. Every time I sell yoga, every time I make money on yoga, that is cultural appropriation. So what am I doing? Like, what am I selling then? And like I said, in my studio, like I have a physical space, I sell an experience. And I sell the ability for somebody to put their cell phone with their shoes in a little box and turn it off and come into the space and feel connected and co-regulate with all their amazing co-students. And we all love co-regulation. It's our favorite thing. And they have their tea and they see my beautiful mural and they feel better because I've given them an experience. So now I know where the point of commodity is. Yoga is a gift. And so if somebody asks me for more information about yoga, I never say, oh, that's something that I'm not going to tell you because yoga is a gift and I am generous with it. And I encourage my teachers to be generous with their knowledge. Our students will come back because my experience is the best in town. Mm -hmm. So I want people to think about what the point of commodification is in the same way that if 
you know, I run a nonprofit and if my nonprofit was trying to get donations because we supported folks of color, then the point of commodification is us not being racist. And that's not an okay point of commodification, right? Like that's the basic, like that's us just being like really the bare bones of most decent human beings. Like, so think about where money is exchanged, why money is exchanged and take yoga and time out of the equation. You don't sell yoga and you don't sell your time because you are a magical bit of stardust and your time is invaluable. We can't make that resource ever again. Once it's gone, it's gone. So again, your time should be a billion dollars. So now what? Now what are you selling? Hmm. I love how you're framing this. I never thought about it before, but when I go back to the optimal state mission statement, the experience I'm creating, you know, you have a beautiful studio and a mural and tea and put your cell phone away. I guess what I'm selling is this potential for opportunity to connect deeply with yourself and feel inspired and have people communicating with you well, and to feel a sense of belonging. Yeah. You sell your container and it is a very brilliant and beautiful container where people feel safe and whole and that's not something that just anybody could do. Mm. The yoga is a gift. It's not ours. It's not anybody's at this point. It's old enough that it doesn't belong to anybody. Right. So, you know, I can't fix capitalism. And at this point I'm really busy and I'm not going to try. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> that would be a big goal for this lifetime. <laughs> But we have to participate in some way. I have to make, I have to pay my bills. I have to eat. I have to live a life that makes me feel excited and have vacations every once in a while, right? So what is that point of monetary exchange? And for so long, it was just gonna be yoga. And you just said, okay. So I saw so many good ethical humans say, well, I'm gonna get out of the yoga industry because I don't wanna sell yoga. Fair but also we need you. We need good ethical humans because there's going to be plenty of people who will come in and look at the vacuum in our industry and just swipe up all the customers, you know, and they don't care. So, so good people leaving isn't a good solution, right? Because then the few of us who are left are fighting with big, huge corporations that honestly don't care about the sustainability of our industry the way that we do. Yeah. So now we have to sell something else. Now that commodity exchange has to be something other than yoga. Hmm. Well, I want to ask you, do you do private coaching? Cause it seems kind of like an etheric, what you're saying, like makes total sense, but I could see to a new person, like to figure that out, what am I actually selling here? I think that's hard work without some kind of support or mentor or coach. Do you do that work with people now? I do do that work. And I also do, I so I do general workshops and it is selling yoga is one of them. Everybody thrives is one. Nobody feels icky is another. Pricing and seva is one. And then leadership within the yoga community because I believe very strongly that yoga needs more leaders. We need more people who think of ourselves as leaders within our community and this is some of the projects that i do and um, i'm really excited about that so i have those coming out in the fall and 
also I do private coaching as well. If you need more of me, I'm happy to develop programs for that. Yeah, I'm bringing up your your website here. The Sunlight Experience is is one website, but I think that's your blog, right? Well, if you hit yoga online up there, yeah. And if you click into whichever one, new student or member login, you it will take you directly to my virtual platform. And my virtual platform has all of those things on it. Mm, great, great. We need more people like you, Rebecca. We really, really... And like you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we're both passionate about this type of work to help people figure out how to be sustainable conserve your energy. I mean, I recently had a health crisis because I had worked way too hard for the last year Yeah, and, and figure out how to have a decent lifestyle being of service in a sustainable way. That's really the magic right there. Yeah. Yes. We can do it. I believe in us. Yes. Wonderful. So is there anything last you'd like to tell us? Any other websites or anything about your podcast called Working in Yoga? So all of my work on this kind of stuff is in workinginyoga.com. That's my podcast website. And you can find a lot of me, a lot of it on Instagram and always hit me up on Instagram at Rebecca Sebastian Yoga. Those are the best places. Amazing. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca, for being with us today. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, a fellow businesswoman who is looking to do good work in the world. You know, one of the things I always say that if we didn't charge for yoga, that means the only people who are teaching yoga are wealthy people who can afford to do it without getting paid. And I think the world would be at a huge loss if the only people doing yoga and yoga therapy were wealthy people. I think those of us that have struggled, that have had to fight and claw and work our way through lives that have been difficult and challenging and, you know, really character building in some cases, I think those are the people that we really want to be teaching yoga. I got a letter from one of my students the other day, kind of just telling me about their life and and how challenging it's been. And and almost apologizing for for how they show up in the world due to this very difficult life that they've lived. And I think maybe, I'm not sure, but I think they might think that I would be disapproving of, of the life that they had lived. And I was anything but that. I was like, yoga needs you. The field of yoga needs you. The clients need you. All this rich, amazing life experience, the suffering that has come through it, the resiliency you've shown, this is what yoga needs. And therefore, this student needs to be able to make a living so that they can bring that to our community. And it's a very difficult conversation. I I agree with what Rebecca and I had talked about that so many people have trauma around money around safety, security, being provided for, probably due to childhood trauma for many of us. And we actually have to work through that. And oftentimes we need a coach or a mentor like Rebecca or myself to do that. Uh, And there's many others that I listed in the podcast today. I think just like any other type of trauma, we need to go in, lean in, 
feel it, examine it, you know, unpack it. We will never get over our money trauma by ignoring it and pretending it doesn't exist and just saying, oh, I just don't want to deal with budgets and I don't want to deal with money and I don't want to be a business person. That's not reality. So how are we going to go in and support ourselves, nourish ourselves and unpack all of these kind of big emotions we have around safety, security being provided for trading in our power to try to cozy up to power, which never works, right? We all we all think if we can just get near that big teacher, or if we can just get into that big organization, everything's going to be fine. I'm here to tell you, it's not going to be fine. When you cozy up to that big teacher or get yourself into that organization, you're going to have all the same problems you had before. <laughs> probably on a, a larger scale now and in, in public, right? We have to go in and do this very, very deep work around shraddha, around faith, around trust of ourselves and others and the divine. And that's living our yoga. So, you know, building a yoga business is no different than cleaning up any other area of your life that's kind of been neglected or out of balance, or you have trauma in that area, you would go to a therapist for, you know, a relationship cleaning up. You would go to a mechanic if your car wasn't working. Why not go and get some support around money trauma and and building a business trauma? I think it, it takes a village to help raise us. Many of our parents couldn't or didn't teach us about how to create a sustainable business that's good for us, our employees, our independent contractors, and our clients. So I really appreciated this conversation. I just want to thank Rebecca. It was very inspiring to me, and I hope that you enjoyed it too. Please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter mailing list, where we give you a free gift every single week. It's usually something that the guest has been talking about, like a book chapter or an article or an infographic. Check out the show notes for that. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content. And that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, 
who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.